0: You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K.
1: Many companies who don't think of themselves in the traditional sense as a government contractor or grant recipient may actually be a subrecipient or subcontractor that would still be subject to the False Claims Act.
2: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Caveat, the CyberWire's privacy, surveillance, law, and policy podcast. I'm Dave Bittner, and joining me is my co-host, Ben Yellen, from the University of Maryland Center for Health and Homeland Security. Hello, Ben. Hello, Dave. Today, Ben has the story of a tech firm offering facial recognition technology to city governments to help them ID homeless people. I share the struggles of digital libraries in a world of stringent copyright laws... And later in the show, my conversation with Mike Tice and Stacey Hadtica from Hogan Lovells. We're discussing the False Claims Act and how it relates to cybersecurity. While this show covers legal topics and Ben is a lawyer, the views expressed do not constitute legal advice. For official legal advice on any of the topics we cover, please contact your attorney. And now, a message from Cyberbit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport— all using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. CyberBit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live-fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com cyberwire. All right, Ben, uh, let's uh, share some stories here. Uh, you're up first. What do you got? So mine comes from our old friend Joseph
3: Cox at uh, Motherboard by by Vice. Um, it's been a while since we've done a, a Joseph Cox article. And <laughs> I feel like we have some sort of quota. That's so <laughs> yes, right. I'm glad we're going back to him. Have to uh, put him
2: on the payroll.
3: Exactly. Yeah. Uh, so the article is entitled, Tech Firm Offers Cops Facial Recognition to ID Homeless People. Hmm. This is about a firm called Odin Intelligence. They have a fantastic Viking-themed logo,
1: <laughs> if I might say so myself.
3: Okay, uh, And they are selling to police departments across the country the capability to identify and pull up information on people experiencing homeless. And they would do that through facial recognition technology. Hmm. Seemingly, um, the benefits of this technology would accrue to homeless people themselves. So the name of this, which sounds kind of Orwellian, frankly, is the Homeless Management Information System. Hmm. I think the original impetus behind this is, you know, you could better manage your homeless problem by seeing which people were in shelters, which people were violating their parole. Hmm. Um, You know, you can get information on... You know, people who have outstanding warrants. Uh, so, if you're doing uh, that, you know that type of surveillance and, and using facial recognition technology that might help you solve crimes. Yeah. The way this organization is selling this to to police departments is kind of saying this is a way to help solve your homelessness problem in terms of policy. Hmm. So they have a slide here, and this was all I think leaked to this document um, by by a source. And the uh, slide has a what's the problem section. And they discuss, you know, why homelessness is a problem. Crime, unchecked predatory behavior, poor hygiene, parentheses, use street as a restroom, Mm -hmm. panhandling, and petty crimes. So that's the pitch to these uh, city governments. You're getting, uh, you know, people who are degradating your, your city's culture potentially off the streets. You can identify them. And, you know, that's your way to, as a policy, help solve this homelessness difficulty. Hmm. With something um, as pervasive as this, uh, you run the risk of pretty severe violations of civil liberties. Uh, So, for example, um, you know, we've heard about Google collecting images on homeless people or Google contractors, rather, scanning unhoused people to help accumulate data for their own facial recognition software Mm -hmm. to help augment that software. So, you know, the fact is that this information could be used for those nefarious purposes without the consent uh, of homeless people who are being surveilled. You know, and then there's, of course, the civil liberties concerns of subjecting people who don't have homes to this level of electronic surveillance you know, one of the hallmarks of our Fourth Amendment is a person's home is his or her castle, Mm -hmm. meaning there is an extra layer of protection, constitutional protection, within one's home. And there's only so much the government can do without a warrant um, to to spy on people in their their own homes. So you have this major issue here where you have a population of people who don't have that. They don't have that proverbial castle. Mm -hmm. And now, you know, they are being subjected to a pretty uh, invasive method of electronic surveillance, supposedly for their own good. Hmm. Um, but I just think it, it's something I would certainly be concerned about from a policy perspective.
2: Hmm. I, I, can I play devil's advocate here and just you oh, know, wonder yes. that uh, – because I, I could see there being uh, the ability of a city to keep tabs on – uh the movement of of this group of people who's staying where where are they sleeping um you know what what uh, facilities are they using so on and so forth if you were trying to uh, have a good faith approach to helping this population that would be useful data wouldn't it Absolutely. And not only is it useful potentially for these cities,
3: you know, I think there really are benefits to homeless people themselves as long as they are consenting to it. Right. Um. So, you know, it does offer if, if a homeless person has access to a smartphone, they could download an application. You could check in from the street and you could have a bed reserved at a shelter potentially. Mm-hmm. So, you know. This this isn't a situation where you have a piece of technology that has no beneficial use. You mentioned some of the benefits to a city or a city government, uh, and there are benefits for the homeless person themselves. It is a homeless person management system.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: Uh, so you know if it it provides people. Information, you know, based on your GPS data of the nearest shelter and whether there's bed availability, that could certainly be useful. Yeah. You know, I think it's important to flag, though, because with every type of technology like this, there always is the potential for abuse. And here we're literally talking about some of the most marginalized people who don't have the resources to fight back if their images are used, um, you know, for for purposes that aren't uh, – you know, pursuant to their own consent, right? Um, so that would be my concern here.
2: It's a fascinating thing. I I must admit that I I never really pondered the the notion of how much of our rights are tied to our homes, right? That the so many things about being searched and privacy, your right to privacy, is tied to. The ability to go inside your home, your apartment, wherever you live, and close the door. Right, exactly. And if you don't have that, you lose a lot of what I think many people would agree are fundamental rights as U.S. citizens. Right. I mean, you really
3: don't have a reasonable expectation of privacy. Um, You know, our common law going back centuries really associates privacy with, as you say, one's home. Mm. And we have this public view doctrine where— if you are seen in public, you really don't have a reasonable expectation of privacy. Hmm. But if you don't have a place to go, if you don't have your own property or any rental property, then you are by definition constantly in public and might be, you know, confined to a situation where you're facing 24/7 surveillance. Right. The other thing I'll mention here is, you know, is this actually the best use of our resources? as this company claims, for solving the homelessness problem. Mm -hmm. Um, And they talked to Chris Gilliard, a research fellow with the Technology and Social Change Research Project at Harvard. They talked to Motherboard for this article, um, and he's basically saying this is you know, just not the most efficient use of money that could actually be used to house people. We know what people need, stable, permanent housing. Right. We've seen in social uh, science experiments that pretty much just giving people housing is the best way to solve the homelessness problem. Yeah. Um. So, you know, in his view... We are using what he refers to as a tech laden scheme to solve a problem where we already know what works. Hmm. Um, so, even if this technology is intended to transcend hardship, you know, if we really wanted to transcend hardship, we would just cut out this, this middleman and just give people housing. Get rid of the hardship. Exactly.
2: In no, other no, words, don't, yeah, don't, don't, uh, yeah. Sym- symptoms versus cause, right? Right.
3: Um, and then we wouldn't have these privacy problems if we were to house homeless people. Right. And everybody would have a home that is their castle It would be afforded those privacy protections. Yeah. So it's just, it's about a, a population that frankly, we don't think about enough and we mm-hmm. don't think about enough in the context of the surveillance state. So I thought it was a really interesting article to, to shine light on that issue.
2: Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, we will have a link to that in the show notes. Um my story this week uh, comes from ZDNet. This is an article written by Chris Freeland, uh, and it's titled Librarians Lament, Digital Books Are Not Fireproof. And uh, it sort of leads off talking about how, you know, we've seen uh, lately there has been a lot of uh, school boards and lawmakers who've been on a, a bit of a tear banning books from libraries and public schools. Yep. Um, and so there's been this, this uh, push for what uh, – a gentleman named Jason Perlow uh, referred to as a Freedom Archive, which is a, a digital repository of banned books, uh, the notion being that you can't burn a digital book. But really what the, this article gets to is that there are online attempts at uh, repositories, the Internet Archive probably being the, the best-known one, um, who tries to do exactly what their name is, you know, archive all of the world's stuff, books uh, – Uh, media, images, all that kind of stuff. And that comes up against copyright law. And some of these publishers uh, use copyright law to keep these online libraries from housing the things they want to house, from being able to share them. Um, This is fascinating to me, Ben, because as a lover of libraries and uh, having, you know, grown up in a community. Absolutely. Be, be fortunate enough to have grown up in a community that value, places a lot of value on libraries and so has invested in high-quality libraries. Um, I have wondered, as, as we've continued our journey, you know, down this digital road, if we didn't have libraries and the notion of libraries were brought up today, I don't think we could have libraries. Never.
3: We would get these attacks on, you know, how can you give these things out for free? This is a waste of government resources. Right. (laughs) Yeah. um, If
2: someone wants to read a book, they should buy a book. And because it's not fair to the publisher or the author. Exactly. It's their intellectual property. Why are we giving this away for free? Exactly. Right. Right.
3: Now, luckily, our legal system has taken that into account. Um, Under our copyright law, there is this fair use doctrine. Yeah. Um, Fair use doctrine allows you to uh, not publish but to make content available under a variety of exceptions to the Copyright Act. So, for example, you know, parody is generally fair use. Right. Um, Using something for academic purposes, um, highlighting somebody else's work without the intention to profit off of it generally qualifies as fair use. Fair, the fair use doctrine has allowed libraries to f- uh, flourish because it is fostering um, the ability of people who don't have access financial resources to to buy books, or um, you know, just just people who who don't have access to books in the first place, the ability to read those books. Yeah, um, and that's why libraries have been able to serve the public despite these copyright laws. But now we had this instance last year, or a couple of years ago now, where The COVID pandemic hit, public libraries, the physical locations were closed. They were trying to allow people to check out digital versions of books, and they were subject to these lawsuits from major publishers saying, you know, we have an intellectual property interest in uh, this publication, Mm -hmm. and this is a violation of our our intellectual property rights. Mm -hmm. And you can see, I think what this article is getting at is, you know, the slippery slope there where, you know, digital publications might be a saving grace to help us have access to some of our most notorious pieces of literature in the event that the physical copies are sequestered or or censored. Hmm. Uh, And so I think it's important to maintain that capability.
2: Yeah. A couple of things come to mind here for me. I mean, one— uh, it, with our own library system, um, my wife is a, is a big uh, user of our library system and particularly some of the digital uh, capabilities that they have. And so she can sign out books you know, online, read them on her digital device, and it works great. But one of the things that, at least the way that our library system works, is that they have a limited number of copies of even the digital books. Right. So you have to sign them out and you have to check them back in. And this seems to be reasonable to me. Like, I I would imagine that our library system is paying the publishers for X number of books to be put into circulation, the same way that they would pay the publisher to have X number of books on the shelf. Mm -hmm. And you can sign up to be on a waiting list for that, you know, hot new novel that came out, (laughs) right? Um, The newest Harry Potter. Yeah, yeah, right. So it seems to me like that part of this is manageable. Um, The other side, though, that kind of— bugs me is that if i buy a book at a bookstore and i enjoy the book and i say oh you know what i would love to share this book with my friend ben when i'm done with the book i can hand the book to you you can take the book home you can read the book no more money spent on that book i can't do that with a digital copy
3: right uh i mean at this point no you cannot yeah Uh, you can't just let somebody borrow it right um yeah I mean you'd have to <laughs> uh, either do things that might violate somebody else's copyright uh, protection or just not give that book to somebody else yeah. so there is that restriction on sharing that you don't see in uh, you know the physical copy of books yeah um I think what he mentions here is you're fearful of a situation where some local government entity, whether it's a school board um, or a city council bans a book or forbids a book from being taught in schools, um, that could potentially be pulled from a digital library's bookshelf. Mm. And then you have a situation where, in effect, you are censoring digital books. You are able to burn digital books. And then you use that sort of um, resource of last resort, which is books available even if they've been banned in physical form. And I think that's kind of a problem that needs to be addressed. Um I'm glad that there are organizations out there like the Internet Archives um, that are, are trying to address this problem.
2: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, it's an interesting article. Again, it's uh, from uh, Chris Freeland over at ZDNet. We will have a link to that in the show notes. Uh, we would love to hear from you. If you have a story you'd like us to cover or a question for me or for Ben, you can send us an email. It's caveat at com. And I recently had the pleasure of speaking with Mike Tice and Stacey Haddocka. They are both from Hogan Lovells, uh, and we are discussing the False Claims Act and how it relates to cybersecurity.
0: So the Federal False Claims Act is actually a statute that is very familiar to companies that do business with the federal government. But for those who are not familiar with the act, it is the primary tool used by the United States Department of Justice to pursue enforcement against people who present false claims to the United States for payment. So the act was originally enacted during the Civil War, signed into law by President Lincoln in 1865. And back in the Civil War, it was used for what you might expect, uh, companies that were selling shells to the United States that had gunpowder or had sawdust instead of gunpowder, uh, lame mules, rancid meat being sold to the Union Army, that sort of thing. And over the last 150, 160 years, it has uh, been applied to every uh, type of government procurement, uh, grants, uh, programs, basically anything that involves uh, federal dollars can uh, result in investigations and enforcement under the Federal False Claims Act.
2: And Stacy, how would someone typically find themselves running afoul of the FCA?
1: Yes. So the False Claims Act, at least with respect to government procurement, usually contractors or grantees, when they have requirements as part of their contract, um, end up not complying with those specific requirements and then submit false claims for payment. Um, and of course, Mike, understands kind of the more nuances of that or the more technical aspects of that. But ultimately, if the company is representing itself as being compliant, but in turn is not compliant and results in a misrepresentation, um, that type of entity could find itself subject to False Claims Act liability because it's induced the federal government to give it funds, even though ultimately it wasn't compliant with the requirements in order to get those funds.
2: So we want to focus on some of the elements of the False Claims Act that uh, could be applied to cybersecurity um, as we make our way through 2022. Uh, is it fair to say that there's a, an enhanced focus on cybersecurity from the Department of Justice?
0: Absolutely. The Biden administration and the Department of Justice under Attorney General Merrick Garland has clearly made it a priority to encourage American companies, and especially those who do business with the federal government, to harden their defenses against computer intrusions, breaches, and cyber attacks. And the way that they have gone about doing that is by announcing an initiative for civil cyber fraud enforcement. Back in October of uh, 21, they rolled out uh, this initiative. And the idea is to um, you know sort of roll out the red carpet for private whistleblowers to come forward with information about uh, failures of companies to comply with their cybersecurity requirements in terms of software and defenses and other things that may be required by contract regulation or, or other law, and to use the, the False Claims Act as the way of, of uh, incentivizing companies to making sure uh, that they comply. So the way that that works is, as you may know, the, the False Claims Act does and has since the Civil War included provisions for private citizens to file suit. The so-called tam provisions of the False Claims Act created financial incentives for people to come forward and file suit on behalf of the United States. The United States investigates and can either take over the case and handle it itself or can decline and let the private citizen go forward with the suit. The False Claims Act was overhauled in 1986 to substantially enhance those private whistleblower provisions. And since 1986, uh, the Department of Justice has had a really extraordinary record of successes in enforcement under the False Claims Act. And so the idea was to take that, that tool, which is very effective, and combine it with the skills that, that the department has in investigating procurement fraud more generally, and uh, to create uh, strong incentives for companies to be compliant and to make sure that they are doing the things that are required under their contracts or, or by regulation with respect to uh, cybersecurity and defenses against intrusions and breaches.
1: I was just going to mention that there's already been a few Cybersecurity False Claims Act cases um, that we've seen. And of course, we think the government's certainly going to leverage as they pursue False Claims Act allegations and investigations um, going forward. And two of those, one involved a, a leading IT company where a whistleblower actually alleged vulnerabilities in certain computer systems that were furnished to the federal government That case was ultimately dismissed, but there's um, currently an ongoing case uh, with respect to a leading defense contractor in the aerospace industry sector, also with respect to whistleblower allegations. It was alleged that the company made false statements regarding its compliance with respect to DoD and NASA cybersecurity requirements. And so again, we've already kind of seen a playbook laid out for some cases in this area where DOJ, of course, can leverage as it moves forward with new investigations. And, and the case I was mentioning with respect to the leading aerospace and defense contractor, that's currently ongoing and um, survived a round of motions to dismiss and then summary judgment motions and is moving forward onto the merits.
0: Yeah, I should also say, Dave, that in rolling this initiative out, the, the department uh, expressly said that there would be three specific areas that they would be looking at for enforcement. One is uh, companies who knowingly provide deficient cybersecurity products or services. Second is knowingly misrepresenting cybersecurity practices or protocols. And then third is knowingly violating obligations to monitor and report security incidents and breaches. And each of those presents a different manner in which enforcement can take place. But I think it's important to underscore that the department has also made clear that they're not going to wait for a breach uh, before they go after uh, a company under the False Claims Act. These requirements may be specifically spelled out in, in the contractual requirements of, of the procurement contract. The Department of Defense may be buying a weapon system or an aircraft or something else, but if there are cybersecurity requirements built into that contract as there are in virtually all Department of Defense contracts and the contractor fails to deliver the cybersecurity measures that are are called for they can be investigated and and sued under the False Claims Act notwithstanding the fact that there hasn't been a breach yet you know hmm. certainly i think the public is generally familiar with you know some of the very significant breaches and intrusions that have taken place in really almost every industry in the United States. And there can be significant uh, ramifications for those breaches. And I think where they take place, the the department will also be looking at possible enforcement under the False Claims Act. But what they are trying to emphasize is if you fail to deliver the, the security you promise under your contract or that is required by regulation, um, you know, you can can be subject to investigation and enforcement under the False Claims Act, even without an actual breach taking place.
2: Interesting. Can you give us some insights as to what is considered to be the basic level of cybersecurity required? And, and part of my question is that obviously companies who are providing cybersecurity services have to meet uh, the, the obligations of their contract. But if I'm supplying something to the government that isn't directly cybersecurity related, if I'm, if I'm making hammers or nails or you know, something like that, to what degree do I need to be concerned about
0: this? Yeah, I think that's a good one for you to take, Stacey.
1: Yeah, no, I'm, I'm happy to answer. And, and so currently there is no um, government-wide standard um, for cybersecurity requirements. There is a FAR clause under the Federal Acquisition Regulations. It's a safeguarding clause that does apply to the majority of government contractors. That relates to specific information called federal contractor information and um, certain Contractors are actually exempt for those requirements, which um, those that provide commercially available off-the-shelf items, so what we call COTS items, and so those types of um, contractors are not subject actually to the FAR safeguarding requirements, and and those. Best practices are about 15 NIST 800-171 standards or safeguards that uh, the federal government has identified as what should be the baseline best practices for all contractors. Um, Of course, as Mike was mentioning, at DOD, you still may have contractors that do sell boots, um, for instance, and you would think that they may not have to be subject to such stringent requirements because on the DOD side of the House, you have the Defense Federal Acquisition Regulation Supplement, the DFARS Clause, that imposes adequate security requirements that are at a heightened level than those found in the Federal Acquisition Regulations, but I've heard a lot of scenarios, for instance, where that boot manufacturer, as, as we're getting into the smart world, there may be a chip in those boots one of these days that might be able to actually track those military personnel of where they're being located or how they're um, moving on the ground to get certain types of information. And so even those manufacturers of items that you may may not think would actually be subject or should be subject to various cybersecurity requirements. The DOD has identified those types of manufacturers still as being important and subject to the various requirements.
0: Yeah, I think, Dave, your your question is a really good one, because I think there might be a tendency to look at this initiative and say, well, you know, we don't manufacture computers or IT infrastructure and, and sell it to the United States government, and so we don't need to worry about this. And I don't think That's correct. (laughs) In other words, there are requirements imposed on all kinds of companies that do business with the government. And I'll just give you a couple of examples. You know, think of an institution of higher education, a college or university that is doing research for the United States on, you know, a highly sensitive topic, whether it is related to national security or defense or, or health or anything else. There may be you know, very specific requirements imposed on that college or university in terms of what kinds of defenses they need to have against uh, breaches and intrusions. And if they don't deliver, you know, they are vulnerable to investigation and, and enforcement. You know, a same thing with a an insurance company or a a contractor in the healthcare space that is doing business uh, for the federal government, a Medicare. Uh, Contractor that's processing claims for the United States. Well, it turns out that that health information that's being processed by, by a contractor like that is also highly sensitive and confidential and highly desirable for the kinds of people who engage in these intrusions and breaches, you know, for their own criminal enterprises. And so there there are very specific requirements that are imposed on a company like that. And again if they fail to meet the cybersecurity requirements that are imposed on them by contractor regulation, they're vulnerable to investigation and enforcement.
1: Of course, there are. I mentioned the regulations that government contractors would potentially be subject to uh, based on the FAR and DFARS clauses that are included in their contracts. But a lot of the federal agencies, especially on the civilian side, um, impose ad hoc requirements. And so, again, to Mike's point, no matter what industry you're in, you may be handling taxpayer um, information in processing payments for tax refunds that particular type of company will still be subject to unique cybersecurity requirements. And of course, um, the IRS, for instance, has imposed and implemented its own requirements outside of those standard FAR and DFARS clauses. And so, companies from all different industries, um, all levels of federal contracting and, getting, um, and also grant recipients, of course, um, should be paying attention to this initiative, as it also doesn't just impact a prime government contractor or direct grant recipient, but that can also impact those subcontractors or subrecipients that are also working under a federal contractor grant. And so many companies who don't think of themselves in the traditional sense as a a government contractor or grant recipient may actually be a subrecipient or subcontractor that would still be subject to the False Claims Act. And those cybersecurity requirements tend to flow down.
0: Yeah, that's a great point, Stacey. And, and just to expand on that a little bit, the, the reach of the False Claims Act is extensive. It, it extends not only to those companies that uh, are doing business directly with the United States government, but to anyone who causes a false claim to be pres- presented to the United States. And so, as Stacy said, that can mean vendors uh, or subcontractors to the, the prime contractors to the United States who may have these requirements imposed on them as well by, by contract or regulation or otherwise.
2: So is it fair to say that in terms of companies assessing how they need to approach this, that this is more of a, a risk assessment exercise rather than a kind of a checkbox black and white, hey, we did this and now we're good sort of thing?
0: Yeah, I think that's right. I think that this is you know, something else that needs to be added to the chief compliance officer's list of, of items to be auditing, checking for, conducting internal investigations, especially before they get into a situation where there is an intrusion or breach. In other words, this is part of the, you know, good business hygiene that, that companies in this current environment have to engage in to make sure that that they are taking appropriate steps to guard against uh, breaches and intrusions, that they are careful with the sensitive or confidential data that they handle and fulfilling the, the obligations that they have to deliver cybersecurity to the United States government when they are uh, contracting with them. Department of Justice is very deliberately unleashing the forces of the private sector motivated by the financial incentives that are created by the tam provisions of the False Claims Act, you know, to get people to come forward and, and report these things. And so individual employees of companies that do business with the, the federal government uh, now have a, you know, an open invitation to come forward and to report their companies. And so chief compliance officers and, and you know, legal and regulatory teams at, at companies that do business with the government should be looking at what are we doing to make sure that we are living up to the expectations that the government has in terms of software, uh, cybersecurity defenses, taking steps to ensure that we protect our data. Yeah,
1: and following up on that too, I don't think there is a one-size-fits-all approach here, especially because, um, as you noted, that there's some companies that may be providing items that pose less risk to the federal government. Of course, where I would recommend companies start is really with the contract itself and, and understanding what federal business and work it has. A lot of times, companies that are working with the federal government have a small fraction of federal government work when it may have a larger commercial presence. And so taking what those government contracts, personnel, um, security personnel are saying, I think, is kind of a culture that needs to be addressed from the top down. And so companies, as, as Mike was saying, in their compliance regime need to ensure that they're understanding what government obligations they have and also recognizing that they need to take these Seriously.
2: You know, Ben, I, I think you could tell uh, from this conversation uh, how fascinating it was to me. I had no idea that the False Claims Act went all the way back to the Civil War and uh that it was actually Abraham Lincoln who was who put it into to uh action.
3: Yeah, you wouldn't think it is a, a law from the 1860s. It is our government's tool uh to combat fraud perpetrated against the government. Yeah. Um and uh you know there are a lot of causes of action based on the False Claim Act. Um that's usually uh what we see when we see a whistleblower coming forward they're usually um you know and they're usually initiating something that will eventually lead to a cause of action under the False Claims Act. Yeah, and it's led to you know a lot of really interesting legal cases, really interesting settlements. Um, it allows the government to collect money from large corporations, uh, organizations based on misrepresentations to to consumers. Yeah. Um and you know it's also even though it was instituted in the 1860s we've seen it uh, amended a number of times. Right,
2: right. It's uh, fascinating that it can that it, I don't know. I, you I, obviously at its base you can see the necessity of it um but to see it evolve and still be relevant uh from the civil war to now and being applied to cybersecurity uh really fascinating. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, my thanks to Mike Tice and Stacey Haddocka from Hogan Lovells for joining us. We do appreciate them taking the time. And now a word from our sponsor, Netscope. Netscope is a worldwide leader in SASE and zero trust. Its unified platform, Netscope One, provides optimized access and zero trust security for people, devices and data anywhere they go That is our show. We want to thank you all for listening. The Caveat Podcast is proudly produced in Maryland at the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our senior producer is Jennifer Iben. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpe. I'm Dave Bittner. And I'm Ben Yellen. Thanks for listening.